Hello, everyone. I am Rick Thomas, and you're listening to Life Over Coffee. I have an important topic that I want to talk to you about. Uh, It is something that, well, it is a temptation to all of us, and I have titled this Christian Legalism, Performance Traps, and People-Pleasing. I am talking about a legalism that affects us after we are born again. There is still this gnawing temptation in some of us to where we want to please God. We're still controlled by the opinion of God in an adverse way, that we want to work to please Him rather than obeying out of a heart of gratitude. And so I want to talk about two individuals here who struggle. One is a Christian, one is not. But I've titled it, nevertheless, Christian Legalism, People-Pleasing and Performance Traps. Now, if you want to take advantage of this resource, there are three ways that you can do it. You can read it. It is a 2,000-plus word article. It is also a podcast, and it is a video. So you choose which way you want to benefit from this. You can read, you can watch, and you can listen. And of course, our requirement is that if you take advantage of this, you have to share it with 1,000 of your closest friends. And so line up all of your friends and begin sharing this with them. Christian legalism, people-pleasing, and performance traps. Let's get into it. Christian legalism is the bane of religion. It's the persistent nemesis in all of our hearts. Though we usually discuss legalism regarding our salvation, I am speaking about how it affects our sanctification after we are born again. Most Christians I encounter do not struggle with a works salvation mentality. And what I mean by that, that they are working in order to be saved. Christians don't typically think that way. However, there is a real struggle when it comes to our performance after God regenerates us. And I'm talking about Christians who fully embrace Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace we are saved. It is not of works. We know this passage very well. Grace is the only way to Christ. But there is a temptation to smuggle a a form of legalism into our Christian experience. I call it Christian legalism that is fueled by people-pleasing and performance traps. According to their most recent behavior, and that is typically how we look at it, depending on what we have done recently. Well, these believers live with an internal grading system of pass or fail, according to how they judge themselves, of course. Now, there are two primary reasons that they have bought or brought this legalistic mindset into their sanctification experience. One, their Adamic nature is legalistic. This is the way of Adam, and we came into the world this way. You could say it is legit. We were born this way. We were born as legalists, a desire. We have this internal compelling to want to please, to please other people. But of course, when we think about God, we want to please him. And Adam was doing that in the early hours of Genesis. And so that is one of the reasons. The second one is the shaping influences that have been primary in our lives. They have taught us to perform 
for acceptance. And we that can happen in such subtle ways. I mean, just going to school, first grade, second grade, when you turn in a report, reports, uh, assignments, tests, exams, they, they're all built around pass or fail. And so we feel good when we pass and we feel bad when we fail. And that is a subtle thing. I'm not saying that we should, we should change uh, that aspect of our school system, but that is a subtle way that we can be shaped and taught that pass and fail. And you can get a smiley face when you do well and, well, not so good when you don't. Then again, you could have really heavy-handed authoritative parents, or you could have manipulative parents that have conditional relationships. But either way, whether so uh, subtle or overt, our shaping influences can compel us to want to please, and then we bring that former manner of life into our Christian experience. Now, some of the signs of what I am going to call here sanctification legalism are, and this is not exhaustive, but self-pity, discouragement, fear, worry, anxiety, people-pleasing, of course, perfectionism. A lot of people struggle with the illusion of perfectionism. I say illusion because you're never going to get there. Boasting uh, is a, a person who could be succumbing to Christian legalism as we brag about whether it's our spiritual uh, spiritual disciplines or brag about the things that we have. Arrogance, fear of man, materialism, that could be bragging about the things that we have in order to gain approval or this sense of power that we have where we feel good about ourselves because of our merit. Criticalness, putting down another person, elevates you to where you can feel better about yourself. And then, of course, unforgiveness. These attitudes are comparison words. That's what they are. We're either comparing ourselves against our self-imposed standards, or we are comparing ourselves against others, like what criticism does. And we can feel better about ourselves based on our work. Two of the more common manifestations of this are self-pity and discouragement. And with that in mind, I want to introduce you to my old friend, Biff. Biff lives with low levels of self-pity and and pessimism, discouragement. I mentioned self-pity and discouragement as the first two in the list that I just shared with you. I'm calling it self-pity and pessimism here or discouragement. Sometimes you'll hear him talk about how unworthy he feels. He consistently rehearses some of the bad things that he did. These thought patterns generally have two sources. One, he silently rehearses his latest mistake as he looks in the rearview mirror, and nobody knows this, but he's doing this to himself. It's kind of self-destructing, self-sabotaging as he quietly rehearses his latest mistake. And then the second way that he delves into self-pity and discouragement is that he quietly compares himself to others. And so whether he is comparing himself to a mistake he made or comparing himself to some other person. During counseling, he said, I am unworthy. I have done so many horrible things. How could Christ love me? 
Now, you will hear a similar struggle if you talk to the average believer today who wants to follow God. Whether it's Bill for any of us, you and and me, you, you can hear what they are saying. Or maybe I should frame this in a question. Can you hear what they are saying? Perhaps you have not done the bad things that Bill has done. But there is a temptation to fall into the same legalistic traps. Do you see the heresy in this kind of theological thinking? You have to see it because if you don't see it, you won't be able to work through it. What if I interpreted Biff's unworthy statements when he says, I am unworthy, based on his latest mistake or based on him comparing himself to another individual. This is one of the dangers of social media, by the way. That is a comparison culture, and some people fall prey to that where they spend so much time on social media seeing the front-facing sides of individuals because we don't show our entire lives on social media. We only show the good things for the most part, and you can fall prey to that where you compare yourselves to their lives, and the irony here, you don't even know their lives. You just know the front-facing side of their lives. But what if I interpreted Biff's unworthy statements through a theological filter? This is what Biff would say. I am a terrible person. I am so bad that God cannot possibly love me. If I were not a bad person, God would, he would like me. I need to be a better person. I need to make myself more presentable than I am so God will love me. And so I was asking you earlier, can you hear his poor theology? Well, I paraphrased and and I put words in his mouth because basically that is what he is saying. In this make-believe self-talk, I have described Biff's practical Theology, which is what he believes in daily thinking and practice. His intellectual theology is something different. His intellectual theology would say, For by grace God saved me through faith, and this was not my doing. It was a gift from God, not a result of my work, so that I may not boast. That's his classical understanding of the Bible. That is his intellectual theology, but that is not how he lives practically. While his Bible knowledge informs him correctly, the freedom that he desires is elusive when it comes to trusting God practically. Sometimes it is hard for people to distinguish what they know, Bible truth, and the functional realities of their orthopraxy, what they practice. Let me share two passages of Scripture with you, and then I will work through them as we move along. The first one is 1 Timothy 1.15 that you're familiar with, I'm sure. Paul is talking, he's talking to Timothy, and he said, he said this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And then earlier he wrote in Romans chapter 3, starting at verse number 10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God or seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. When I talked to my friend Mabel, a crack addict, 
She tried her best to convince me that she was a good person. Think about what Paul just wrote here in 1 Timothy, the foremost sinner. And in Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one, that, that we're all have become worthless. Well, Mabel, my crack addict friend, she tried to convince me that she was a good person. She said, I am a good person. This, is, by the way, is a true story, even though her name is not Mabel. She was my neighbor once upon a time. She hoped that I would walk away thinking that she was a good person when we ended our conversation. Now, I did not tell her what I was thinking. At that moment, it did not seem appropriate for me to begin teaching her sound theology because she was stoned out of her gourd, and she was not in any frame of mind to receive the testimony of Paul about being the foremost sinner. Mabel does not want to wrestle with the realities of her wretchedness. She wants to think of herself as better than what the testimony of scriptures teach in Timothy and in Romans. Mabel hoped to convince me of her excellent qualities so we both would think highly of her. It would double-affirm her delusional I am okay fixation. Both Biff and Mabel do not want to be unworthy. One is a Christian and one is not. They're both caught in performance traps. Biff is continuously penalizing himself because he is not meeting his expectations. Mabel knows her standards are low, and so she hopes that she can deceive herself and others, including me, so she can feel better about herself. The trap of self-righteousness, a greater-than-better-than attitude, or what our world calls high self-esteem, esteeming yourselves, well, it has captured both of them. Biff and Mabel's performances are not meeting the elevated expectations they have set for themselves. If they change, here's an irony here, if they change, they must accept that they are wretchedly unworthy of God's favor, and there is no way for them to work for the Lord's unearned, unmerited grace. In Mark 2.15, 2.17 rather, it says this, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, this is Jesus talking, by the way. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's why both Biff and Mabel, this is the irony. It is gospel irony. They have to accept the unworthy and wretchedness of themselves. The problem with Biff and Mabel is they have a high view of themselves, self-righteousness. And of course, with Mabel, it is self-esteem. It could be with Biff as well, because that is the culture's theme. Theology, and it discourages them from thinking they are not as good as they try to deceive themselves into believing. Have you ever expected to get a good grade only to receive a, a bad grade? Well, in one sense, this is what Biff and Mabel are doing. They so badly want to pass, but they keep failing, and their unwillingness to embrace the reality of their inability distresses them. They have detached themselves from the testimony of scriptures while developing a practical theology that holds them at a higher standing than what the Bible does. 
They persist in convincing themselves, and if they can, they want to convince others that their higher grade worthiness is okay, though the reality of their lives is not cooperating with their delusion. When Mabel surveys the landscape of her life, she becomes discouraged, as she should. But rather than wallowing in the grips of depression, she turns to crack as a pick-me-up, which helps her to escape from her self-judgment. Because Biff is a Christian, he can't turn to such ungodly escapes, so he puts himself through cycles of self-pity and despair, his drugs of choice. That's why I gave you that list earlier that self-pity and discouragement are, are two of the manifestations of a person who is struggling with what I call Christian legalism. In the end, both of them are addicts. One is addicted to crack, and the other is addicted to self-pity. They need to come to terms with their unworthiness before God. They are putrid. They are putrid through and through. They are the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. Rather than trying to climb out of their human depravity to feel better about themselves by self-effort, they need to embrace Scripture's testimony fully. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Ezekiel 16, 6 says, And when I passed by you, I, I saw you wallowing in your blood. Without question, you and I were pitifully guilty. We were standing in God's courtroom, condemned and awaiting sentencing. There was no doubt we were responsible for the greatest crime ever committed. We sinned against God. The evidence was simply irrefutable. We had to shut our mouths before God as there was nothing we could say to extricate ourselves from what he had accused us of doing. Though we may have wanted to think better about ourselves, to feel better about ourselves, there was no argument that we could proffer. God, the prosecuting attorney, made the evidence plain and convincing and beyond any shadow of any doubt. We were guilty before our maker, and we were at the mercy of someone other than ourselves to save us. That is when we learned about the most wonderful news ever told. In our despair and unworthiness, the gospel story came into view. We saw Calvary. There is only one right answer for unworthy people. The appeal is to embrace the worthiness of another. The sick and the helpless cry out to the great physician. Romans 3.21 through 24 says this. I shared with you 10 through 12 that talked about our worthlessness, as Paul penned those words. But as you move along in Romans 3, you will come to this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." Biff is a believer who needs to reacquaint himself with the gospel. He needs to understand what the doctrine of justification means practically. God, the judge, slammed down the gavel and said, not guilty, you're justified, and that was it. Jesus finished the work of salvation. There is nothing else for Biff to do, and there will never be anything else for Biff to do. God Almighty declared him not guilty, not because he conjured or contrived merit that won over God. Christ won over the Father through his sacrificial death on Biff's behalf. It was the works of Christ that persuaded the Father to accept Biff. Mabel, on the other hand, she needs to be acquainted with the gospel through salvation. She needs to hear and embrace the good news about the Savior's atoning death. Mabel needs to believe his death was for her, and she can't be the good person that she deceives herself to be. She must find her goodness in the works of Christ rather than herself. Both Biff and Mabel have flipped justification and sanctification in their thinking and their practice. According to sound theological teaching, justification precedes sanctification And justification is not dependent on sanctification, meaning your works does not make you justified. But according to Biff and Mabel's practical theology, they believe that sanctification precedes justification, and depending on their sanctification will determine their justification. That's what I mean, that they have flipped justification and sanctification. And so it is their sanctification, their good works, that makes them right with God in their practice. If they work enough or do the right things, they will be acceptable, justified. They would say it this way, I would feel better about myself, end quote. Now, Biff might attempt to argue with you though he understands to a degree Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but you'll have to carefully walk him through how he functionally practices his theology contrary to his Bible knowledge in his head. I would appeal to Biff to reorient his thinking back to the Bible. He embraces a form of legalism, a person who feels good about himself because of what he has done. I would want Biff to see three things. Number one, his endless self-pity about his badness is the wrong mental posture, and it has formed a stronghold that he needs to work through. Number two, he must accept his badness, and that's the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. That is gospel irony, that he must accept his badness to see his need for the one who is perfectly good. And then number three, once he repents of his righteousness, self-righteousness, his work performance, I called it 
And the the title of this article is Christian Legalism, People-Pleasing, and Performance Traps. And so number three, once he repents of his people-pleasing and performance traps, he can receive God's unworked-for mercy. You see, in the text, in in 1 Timothy 1, I I talked about uh, Paul saying that he was the foremost sinner, but as he continues his thought, he says, but I received mercy. And it's important that we don't stop our thinking at the foremost sinner part, which is what Biff is doing, practically. I am a sinner, and he can't get work through that properly, and he's not moving his thoughts forward and saying what Paul is saying in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 1, that I received mercy. Paul did not stop at his badness. Yes, he he was the worst of the worst. He was rotten through and through. He was bad to the bone, but God showed him mercy. Jerry Bridges, in one of his books, and I will paraphrase, and I don't remember the book, but he said this, a diamond is most magnificent when placed against a black velvet backdrop. And that is a cool illustration to help to see that the greater the gap is between our realization of who we were before God found us putrid, drowning in our own blood, unworthy, dead in our trespasses. And then as we recognize the depth of that darkness and then the greatness of of God's uh, Christ's death for us on the cross and the light of the gospel, that diamond just explodes off that black velvet backdrop. And so with these things in mind, I want to ask you four questions to work through as you work through this, through this, um, this idea. Number one, what kind of unworthy are you? The good kind that propels you to Christ, that's a good kind of unworthy. Or are you the bad kind of unworthy that drives you to self-pity and it motivates you to work harder so you can please others on a horizontal plane or please God vertically? What kind of unworthy are you? You see, Bill feels he is unworthy. And so he goes off, it propels him into self-pity, and it motivates him to work harder. Mabel believes that she is unworthy, and she can't get out of that trap, that cyclic trap, so she works, and, and so she ends up she ends up using crack as her escape. And so what kind of unworthy are you? Number two, are you tempted to balance the scales? By doing good things after you do bad things? Or when you do bad things, do you run to the only good person who can make it right? His name is Christ. That is really something to talk through. And if you struggle this way, and many of us do, because again, we're born that way in Adam. We're born legalists and depending on the shaping influences in our lives, whether the subtle kind of trying to get good grades in, in kindergarten and all the way through up, 
our academic journey or in more overt situations where we had some strong, heavy-handed conditional relationships, we can be tempted to balance the scales. And if you do struggle that way, you do want to get help. What I would encourage you to do is to jump inside this article. I have, again, the article, of course, and the podcast and the video are all embedded here so you can read, watch, and listen. But I also have a number of other resources that are linked here, and I would encourage you to take advantage of those resources. Number three, do you know your good works do not make you any more saved? Now, I know that if you've been around Christianity for a while, probably you would immediately, your impulse would be, well, of course I know that. Well, again, we want to make a distinguish, we want to distinguish between what we know because Biff is struggling with the same problem. Classically, classical knowledge says, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, my good works do not make me any more saved. But yet, practically, in the real world where we live, our orthopraxy, well, then we can not live according to our orthodoxy. And so your your and your evil works do not make you any less saved. And so that is the inverted aspect of that question. Do you know your good works do not make you any more saved and your evil works do not make you any less saved? Now, those are closed-ended questions, and I understand that. But you can make them open-ended and you can discuss these things. And I would encourage you to do that if you find yourself in a situation like Biff. And then finally, number four. The broader the gap between your unworthiness and Christ's overwhelming goodness, going back to Jerry Bridges' illustration of the black velvet backdrop and the diamond that is set in on top of it, the broader the gap between your unworthiness and Christ's overwhelming goodness will determine the depth, the breadth, the width, the height of your gratitude for what he has done on your behalf. Here is the question. Are you working to win his favor, or are you rejoicing because of his favor? And I trust it is the latter, that your obedience flows out of and because of what Christ has has done for you. Christian legalism, people-pleasing, and performance traps. Thank you so much for taking advantage of this. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.